This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. I'm Tom Bowden. Today I'm joined by Edwin Rockefeller, author of The Antitrust Religion. During his long career in private practice as an antitrust lawyer, Mr. Rockefeller served as chairman of the section of antitrust law of the American Bar Association. He taught as an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, and he chaired the advisory board of the Antitrust and Trade Regulation Report. He also served four years on the staff of the Federal Trade Commission. Okay, uh, Ed, welcome to the program. Um, you published uh, The Antitrust Religion in 2007, and that was uh, some years after you retired from the practice of antitrust law. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background in antitrust and how that led up to uh, the publication of this book and, and how your perspective as a longtime practitioner informed your writing? I'll be happy to. Uh, it, it came about in this way. When I got out of the Army in 1956, I got a job at the Federal Trade Commission. And I was there until 1961 uh, when I went into private law practice. And uh, like many others, I was able then to specialize in Federal Trade Commission matters, which included antitrust. And I did that for 40 years. and I had very good luck with it. And, but that entire time, uh, I never really I got the feeling that I understood antitrust law or antitrust. It, I, I, I faked it very successfully, but I never really had the feeling that I knew what I was talking about. And so... When I retired from law practice, which was then in 2001, fortunately for me, I had a connection with a publisher of a weekly antitrust and trade regulation report, which I had helped them organize 40 years earlier. And they did not get rid of me, and I didn't get rid of them. So I kept receiving their publications, which gave me an opportunity to keep current in what was happening in the field, but I was no longer any, under any pressure to uh, generate business for myself or to uh, participate in uh, uh, court proceedings or other proceedings involving antitrust. So I spent the next five years, I think, reading everything I could get hold of about antitrust. And I got the four or five or six uh, major books that were used in law schools in the country, looked up various sections where I seemed mystified before, and then from time to time, I would put pieces that, of thoughts that I had in a little one-page 
submissions to that antitrust and trade regulation report, and they would publish them. And that gave me an opportunity to, uh, it's a terrible cliche, but refine my thinking, forced me to, to uh, try to say what I, w I, I wanted to say. And after about five years of that, I sort of brought it all together and, uh, and, and said, well, I'm, well, maybe I'll try to make a book out of my thoughts about antitrust. And I spent the next couple of years drafting the book. And then uh, Cato, uh, Bob Levy at Cato, uh, edited the book for me, line by line, and they published the book. And it was... Uh, uh, the only thing I regret about it is that I had hoped that I would receive some uh, criticism, some response, some, uh, some uh, from knowledgeable people that what you're saying about such and such is wrong and here's why. It's never come. Uh, all I have received is silence. Now, in a way, that's reassuring. <laughs> it does suggest to me that I've got it right, and the reason I'm hearing no responses is there aren't any. But uh, the only place... Now, the section of antitrust law, the American Bar Association, of which I had the good fortune to be chairman many years ago, and that, and that gave me an end to the whole field and acquaintance with the people and the publications and everything. The only time that they have ever had any mention in print since 2007 is in one, and they publish... Uh, endlessly, uh, journals and bulletins and magazines and all these dilations on, uh, on the doctrine and, and analyses. There's a footnote in one guy's paper that refers to that book as having, uh, by name, and refers to me as a business critic. There's no mention of what the criticism was, <laughs> let alone any response to it. Well, let's, let's talk about this, because this is kind of astonishing to me, since the book is intensely critical of antitrust and antitrust law, and you do make a distinction between those two things. Um, can, you, can you sum up, I mean, the very title of the book is The Antitrust Religion, and I think the comparison is fairly said to be pejorative or or critical or negative in that sense. Can you give us a sense of what the book's theme is and what you were saying in the book? Uh, and, and then if we can think better about why there would be no response to it. I'll try. Perhaps uh, this is uh, something of a key. The, the reason I hung on that term religion is 
I, I believe that antitrust, uh, there's a parallel between the standard oil legend, the role that the standard oil legend plays to antitrust, and the role that the uh, Immaculate Conception plays to the Apostles' Creed. Now, I don't, by bringing this up, which I do in the book or now, I, 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 I don't mean any disrespect to uh, Christianity or religion. It just did occur to me that in the course of those several years when I was thinking independently about the subject, what a parallel there is in my mind uh, between the standard oil legend and the uh, Immaculate Conception. If in the Apostles' Creed, if one accepts the Immaculate Conception, everything pretty well follows from there on. Now, I'm no uh, student or I don't know a lot about that subject, but that's my impression. And the same thing in antitrust. If one believes that Standard Oil monopolized oil in the United States and took advantage of, 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 of uh, people terribly by buying them out and extorting huge prices and that that was all an awful thing and that, that they needed to be breaking, broken up and we don't ever want that to happen again and that's why we have the Sherman Act and that's why we have the Clayton Act, so that that won't happen. My reading was bringing me to the conclusion it never did happen. Standard Oil didn't monopolize anything. Standard Oil rationalized uh, oil. Oil production, distribution, marketing, and refining in the United States very profitably to itself and to the country. And the prosecution of Standard Oil was simply a political uh, act which accomplished nothing. Now, in the course of my reading, to my surprise, I came across Theodore Roosevelt saying... In 1915, quote, not one particle of good resulted to anybody, and a number of worthy citizens of small means were appreciably injured. He was referring to the Standard Oil prosecution. If you read Ida Tarbell's book, The History of Standard Oil, uh, <coughs> It doesn't say what a lot of, of, of people now think it said. It does help you understand how Standard Oil, in conjunction <coughs> excuse me, with the railroads, uh, made what it was doing very profitable. Uh, but what happened was there was great pressure on the legislature 
in Pennsylvania and in Washington to do something about a situation about which nothing could be done. So they adopted the Sherman Act and they prosecuted Standard Oil. And now, if, if one starts thinking that way, the whole antitrust house of cards comes down and it's chasing a ghost. It, uh, it makes no sense. Now, if you analyze the terms that are you, and so what's happened is the, the Supreme Court and the courts generally, they can't say that. They have to pretend or maybe believe that this legislative enactment does make sense or they have to try to make sense out of it. And that's what they've tried to do for over a hundred years and they haven't succeeded from, from my point of view. The Sherman Act, which is kind of the granddaddy of, of uh, antitrust statutes, um, makes it illegal to monopolize uh, trade and commerce. And the Clayton Act uh, makes it illegal to take actions that reduce competition. So these concepts, monopolization and competition, what do they really mean in the context of, uh, of antitrust? Well, they are both very important to what I consider the antitrust religion, which I reject. Monopolization uh, is a theoretical term. One cannot, as a practical matter, monopolize anything without government support. So, and when, when, you, when you get into litigating an attempt to monopolize, say, or having monopolized, there isn't any way to separate legal from illegal action. There, there is no factual basis on which to distinguish attempts to monopolize and simply competitive behavior. And what happens is the judge or a jury to whom all this, these vague, ambiguous things are submitted, they simply announce a result. Uh, so monopoly, and, 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 and once if one starts to think the way I do about that, then as I say, the whole subject collapses. Now, when you get to competition, competition, the word is not used in the Sherman Act, I believe, but it is used in the Clayton Act. And the concept in the Clayton Act is that competition can be adversely affected by what business people do. And I believe that if you think about it, that's nonsense. That competition does not need to be nurtured or protected or uh, preserved by government action. Competition is what happens 
when the government stays out. So there's another basic <coughs> excuse me, antitrust concept which to me makes no sense. The notion that, that the antitrust believers have about competition is a theoretical one of uh, competition between an infinite number of sellers uh, that has never existed and, and, and won't and, and, and is a false goal. Well, in, in, in your book, you, um, you discuss a number of the, the alleged evils that people associate with antitrust and antitrust law, such as price fixing, mergers, tying arrangements, exclusive dealing, and of course, monopolization and restraint of trade. And I'm going to quote from your book. Uh, you have one sentence where you say, quote, the antitrust community invents sinister sounding terms for natural phenomena and enjoys a feeling of self-righteousness in protecting the public from those evils, close quote. Can, can you talk about what, I think most people would say there's a real need for antitrust law, but you seem to be saying maybe not, and so I'm trying to get, you know, what, what really do you think is the, is there a rational basis for the antitrust laws? Well, uh, what, I, the, what I had in mind there was something along this line. It's gone somewhat out of fashion now, but it used to be that a big hobgoblin of the antitrusters was industry concentration. Uh, the, the, some economists were publishing studies that showed what they called concentrated industries were uh, more profitable than less concentrated industries. And their supposition was that somehow the public was being taken advantage of. Now, industry concentration, and they had this term uh, oligopoly. Sounds awful. You wouldn't want anybody in your house that was an oligopolist. Well, when you think about it, an oligopoly is any number of sellers less than an infinite number. And a concentrated industry is the same thing. Unless, unless there's an infinite number of sellers, it's an oligopoly. Uh, so they have this uh, evil of concentration uh, that uh, something's got to be done about. And in, uh, it even went to the extent of, uh, now I'm having trouble about the year, but we got to the point where the senator from Michigan was proposing, I think it was Lyndon Johnson had, this, had some sort of study group and they pursued this notion of concentration and how bad it was, they were going to break up uh, companies where there were uh, fewer than, uh, I don't know what it was, seven in any particular industry or something. Uh, 
And they never got to passage. Uh, somehow the country came to its senses on that, and it all went away. Uh, for one thing, uh, uh, John McGee published a book called In Defense of Industrial Concentration. And that turned around some minds, in academia anyway, and along came uh, uh, the Chicago School, it's called, and uh, uh, Professor Director and his students, Bork and Posner, and uh, they uh, made things a little more rational and sort of shot down the concentration. But but industry concentration is still the basic uh, foundation for the Justice Department uh, merger guidelines. It's If you ask them, how do you decide which mergers you're going to allow and which you don't, they start talking about the guidelines and about concentrated industries when it means absolutely nothing. You know, you um, the first line in your book, I think, is, uh, I'm going to quote from you, we aspire to be a government of laws, not of men, close quote. And I think part of your message in the book is that antitrust is not compatible with that ideal of the rule of law. Would you agree with that, and, and, and why? And especially if you can refer to your the distinction you make between antitrust and antitrust law. I'll try again. I think that's a very important distinction because a lot of the what gets said and written and taught in law school fuzzes up the, uh, that distinction. And one, one line they're talking about antitrust, another line they're talking about an antitrust law. Uh, it, it, it may be uh, useful if I mention that in the course of this reading and thinking I did before writing in the book, I ran across this statement of Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas, uh, a certainly no uh, right winger, who said, antitrust in the United States is not a set of laws by which men may guide their conduct. It is rather a general, sometimes conflicting statement of articles of faith and economic philosophy. I agree with that completely, and he said it uh, better than I could have. So I see we have the antitrust laws. We know what they are. They're in the books. They were adopted by Congress. The words don't change. The Sherman Act, the Clayton Act. Then we have this uh, collection of articles of faith and philosophy called antitrust, which I see as having been founded on the 
Standard Oil legend. And what happened with me was reading what I now believe are the facts destroyed my belief, if I had any, in the Standard Oil legend and left me no basis on which to go further with antitrust activity. Then I thought further critically about what the antitrust community is saying on various subjects, such as these things that sound awful, uh, like oligopoly, uh, but are just perfectly natural phenomena. Uh, well, what about, let me be devil's advocate here for a second, something like price fixing that people come down to, and that's one of the few antitrust violations that's still criminally prosecuted and people go to jail for it. Is that a natural phenomenon with a sinister-sounding name, or is that something that uh, antitrust law should legitimately go after? Well, maybe it's useful first to uh, uh, to review how how we got where we are on so-called price fixing. The Sherman Act uh, makes it a crime to um, enter into any contract combination or conspiracy in restraint of trade. And so pretty early after enactment, the case gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court must have been saying to itself, that would make every contract uh, a crime. That, they can't be, that can't be what they meant. So they invented the so-called rule of reason. And it's only uh, contracts that unreasonably restrain trade uh, that are criminal. Uh, then you get to the problem of, well, how do you decide whether it's unreasonable or not? And there my personal conclusion is everything is relevant and nothing is determinative. You study the existing situation that you're un somebody is unhappy about, all up one side and down the other, and then by a process of hypnosis, the decider decides, bingo, it's unreasonable. Or in most cases, he decides it's not. Well, at one point after, mm, I don't know, 30 years or so, the Supreme Court uh, had a situation, it was in the oil industry, oil distribution, where some of them didn't like what was happening. And somebody put in one of the, the opinions that any 
agreement on price was anti-competitive and unreasonably restrained trade. And, and so then we had the invention of what the antitrust believers call a per se uh, violation of the Sherman Act. Per se meaning we don't have to prove anything uh, except that there was an agreement. Uh, whether, the, you know, what the effect of the agreement was or whether it was effective at all uh, is irrelevant. Uh, these two characters uh, agreed on, on a price at which they would sell. That's even gotten extended to the point where the agreement, an agreement can be inferred from exchanges of information about price. So we have price-fixing prosecutions uh, where the, it is impossible to know what the result, whether it was effective, and, and what the result was even if it was effective. And I have run across, and it's shadowy, but and and not published in a in a uh, peer-reviewed journal, but some study that where a man reviewed the what happened in an industry where there were a whole bunch of price-fixing indictments for criminal price fixing. What happened in the year following the indictments, prices went up. Now, you can't make too much out of that. The, you know, they might have gone up for various reasons, but it certainly doesn't, it, it suggests that maybe from the public's point of view, the price fixers had the price fixed lower than the free market would have given them. Now, why would they have done that? Well, it, that might not have been unreasonable. For, you know, for one thing, in a way, a price-fixing cartel, if there really is one, is sort of a partial merger. In a way, it preserves competition. Rather than merging these companies, uh, they uh, decide that they can go forward uh, without having the hassle of trying to steal each other's business on some nickel and dime basis. Well, so price fixing, we got to it in an odd way. Uh, as a crime, and we do not, it is impossible to know at the time a prosecution is begun whether the fixers have fixed the price too high, too low, or just right. 
You can figure that out only years later after you uh, allocate the costs to the uh, products. Well, let me ask you about this issue of predictability because you've said a, a few things that are relevant to it, and I think it's fascinating. So you talked about the Abe Fortas quotation where he talked about antitrust not really being a guide to conduct. And then you have this quotation, I don't know if you came up with this or, or somebody else did, but everything is relevant and nothing is determinative. Uh, was that your original? Line? I heard that somewhere or read it somewhere, and I can't remember now. It's, it's fascinating to me in that it crystallizes something about antitrust. It does, doesn't it? You can't tell, uh, one of your points is you cannot tell in advance really what's going to violate uh, the antitrust laws and what's not going to. So from that perspective, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience as a practitioner, and I presume that you had some experience with advising clients on antitrust compliance or what should really be called antitrust obedience. Um, how do you, what is the effect, what does is, what is antitrust compliance look like in, in, in the private industry and, and what are its effects, if you can generalize on, on that topic? Well, uh, it, given that the, the laws themselves are not predictable. I think we have, we have a lot of antitrust compliance programs in corporate America, which are basically a uh, lawyer's employment programs. The, the one thing they can tell uh, everybody, and it doesn't take a whole lot of lectures, is don't discuss prices with competitors that may get you in trouble. Other than that, it's all just on the one hand this and the other hand that, with uh, no substance. Now, as to, perhaps this is informative. How did I handle this when I was in law practice, if I was asked for advice? What I recall now uh, is one incident, which I believe was quite formative for me. Uh, it was not at the very end of my period of practice, but I was pretty well along in. Uh, there was a proposed merger uh, on which I was consulted. And it was, a, at the time, a pretty big deal. And I was invited to come and meet with the chief executive officer uh, and uh, give them some advice on should they make this merger or not. And he had a corporate general counsel and the corporate general counsel had a staff counsel, and they had looked up the cases that were remotely uh, relevant, and they had that all laid out in a memorandum of, of, about you know competition and effect on competition, and uh, it was all this general 
uh, vague uh, stuff where he, the discussion doesn't answer anything. Uh, and so we're in there, and this man, who was clearly eager to get to his golf game, and not really all that interested in this subject, but he was going to have to make a decision about this merger. He looked at me, and here he's advised by his lawyers that if he goes ahead, the government may attack him. And he looks at me and he says, well, do you think if we go ahead, they'll attack it? And I, just thinking as quickly as I could, uh, I said, what, the first thing that occurred to me, which was, well, we can't be sure, but I don't think they will. And he got up and, uh, you know, shook my hand, says, you're a great lawyer. And when they made the acquisition, the government didn't attack them. Uh, now, uh, that, that's a big part of my thinking now. Whenever one of these mergers comes up, the antitrust community people, uh, including the academics and, and the media and so on, they all talk in terms of the doctrines. But the doctrines don't tell you whether, whether the government's going to act or not. The government decides, what, and now if you say, well, it's all political, oh, they get very defensive, oh, no, 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 this is nonpartisan, not political. We, you know, I guess, you know, I suppose they believe that, that the doctrine, maybe they believe the doctrines answer the question. And it is sometimes a matter of who can offer a metaphor that's most appealing to the decider. But it is only a metaphor. It's not proof. It's not facts. And that's one of the things I would try to get across to anybody who's trying to understand antitrust. It's a matter of assumptions, not of facts. Can, you, get, can you give an indication of what uh, kind of metaphor you're talking about uh, that you have in mind? Well, uh, market power, for instance, or the market. Antitrust people love to talk about the market. The market is, that's just a metaphor. The market for uh, sardine snacks or, or super premium ice cream. There's no market for, uh, you know, they talk that way and then they decide a merger case on them, but they say, well, this is going to uh, affect competition in the sardine snack market. Uh, and, and it's just metaphorical. All, and the analysis, as they call it, is all based on assumptions. Well, the antitrust community would have you believe it's a very scientific, rigorous, mathematical process of defining a market. I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that perspective? It's simply not. It, it, How are markets defined? By assumption. The, and there what also is fundamental to my thinking was uh, 
this man Fred Rowe, he was a contemporary of mine, and he, and and a a a a, a brilliant guy, uh, both uh, successful both academically and in law practice, and he tried to write a book about about antitrust, and and he spent several years, and the first part of the book was all about how conventional antitrust doesn't make any sense. And then he had the second part of the book was all about how the Chicago school stuff doesn't make any sense either. And then the third part was going to be what did make sense. And I asked him one time, how's the book coming? He said, I couldn't finish it. He quit. He left the field altogether. Well, it's a... Uh, and maybe, I hope it's not a waste of your time, but here's what really I would urge on anybody trying to understand antitrust the following, which Roe wrote in 1984, and it was in the Georgetown Law, Law Journal. <clears throat> Fundamentally, the market is metaphor, not actuality a mental picture in our heads. While many definitions, all circular, state attributes of what the market is, a market is a market is a market. There is no there there. <clears throat> the market has no objective content outside itself. Without empirical reference, identification of the market is perforce arbitrary, a facade for decisions elsewhere derived. Inevitably, the market entails a mix of intuition, judgment, and choice relative for each case and every question at hand. The market itself cannot be the predictive premise, the analytic constant for inferring positive or negative prospects of particular enterprise events in any actual case. The rub is not with economic models as models, but their misuse as legal norms. I try to read that over and over and, and, and try to gain uh, as much understanding of that as I can. Well, given the amount of arbitrariness and unpredictability that is in antitrust, and your book is filled with examples, and we can't bring them all up, but um, when we read in the paper about antitrust monitors being embedded in companies, like Apple right now has an antitrust monitor, Microsoft had an antitrust monitor for many years, um, it, what are these monitors doing when they go into re reform a corporate culture, and what, what effects do you think they have on, on companies? I don't think I have much close-hand uh, knowledge about that. I can suspect what I observe happened 
with, say, Microsoft. When the government came after Microsoft and was proposing to break it up, they, I suppose Gates and others, they were outraged. They uh, they thought, what's going on here? We're you know we're successful competitors. Now you're coming after us. What they in the next few years concluded was, this is a game which we've got to play. That uh, we can't change, and we can manipulate it just like other people. And now Microsoft complains about its competitors. Uh, and it doesn't any longer talk anti-antitrust. Quite the contrary. I think it's hired a general counsel or an antitrust counsel who's a firm believer in antitrust. And so it becomes what the economists call it's a rent-seeking mechanism. That is the uh, different uh, competitors, business people, use uh, the government enforcement mechanism against their competitors. Well, let me ask you this. Given your uh, in, in criticism of the antitrust and the antitrust laws, um, do you have a view on what, I guess it's a two-part question, kind of what should be done about the antitrust laws, and then uh, if it's a different answer, what's politically feasible or socially feasible to do about the antitrust laws? I think that, uh, well, I'm sure I have no program. I, I, I'm not advocating anything. Uh, the An idea that appeals to me, which I got from uh, Professor Priest at the Yale Law School is, you get rid of antitrust, you get something worse in its place. Antitrust is simply one of a number of uh, uh, means for uh, political control of business. Now, it contains a lot of phoniness and dishonesty. That's what sort of... Uh, uh, annoys me personally, but if one understands that it's simply uh, government control, political control of business, uh, you just have to accept it as such. And I don't, uh, I don't advocate any change, and I don't expect that there'll be any. I think it would be desirable for the country if. Uh, academics and, and media people uh, understood a little better what is happening here and didn't and and, 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 and and one reason that I am inclined in that direction is what has happened with so-called consumer class actions where uh, some enterprising, a lawyer uh, dreams up a class of injured parties from some supposed antitrust law violation and he can promote uh, that 
the number up so high that defendants sometimes have no alternative but to pay the extortion. Uh, I think that is genuinely harmful, although it's only money, you know, and I don't, I don't think it, uh, it's uh, life-threatening. Yeah, it's a, I think you called it shakedown, you're calling it extortion, and, and I mean, your book is filled with uh, such uh, really strong criticism of antitrust, the law, and the antitrust community, which is the, the lawyers, the judges, the academics, the economists, and so forth. Can we revisit for a second how it is that you could publish such a strong book and not get the response from the people? So it's not as if you're an outsider who's, you know, that they've never heard of and somebody's just self-publishing a book. I mean, you're, you're somebody with credibility of having practiced in this field. You've got thoughtful things to say and so forth. Do you have... Can you reflect on why would you just get no response as opposed to a real strong disagreement? I think I know the answer to that, and it is there's no, uh, in the academic community, nobody is that interested. The, the, uh, the doctrinal situation, uh, whether they believe it or not, is useful to them. And they're going to continue to use it. And they, they can't make any use of what I'm saying. They, they can't go to the judge and say, Your Honor, none of this makes any sense. They have to talk as though it does. And, and to deal with the, the hundred years or more of, of court uh, history, at pretending that it does make sense. So uh, what I'm saying may be mildly interested, interesting to them, but it's of no use. And yeah. So in, in a conversation uh, a while ago, you indicated to me that you've uh, been instrumental in setting up a nonprofit um, foundation that's dedicated to studying uh, the actual empirical effects of antitrust. Uh, can you share a little bit about that project and, and what's going on with that? Oh, I'm delighted to do so. The, of course, as you might guess, what does interest me is the question, is there any proof that antitrust enforcement has any public benefit? Now, of course, the believers believe that it does, but I'm continually saying to myself, well, where is the proof? What are the facts? And so far, I haven't run across any. Now, so what, we, what I did was I've set this up with a uh, professional researcher, uh, not a lawyer and not an economist, but, but a woman who knows how to look in data banks or whatever. They, you know, I don't even know enough about them to describe them. But with her help, we're paying her to look 
at everything published and see what can she find that is that reports a study of empirical data that purports to say anything about the results of antitrust enforcement. And then I have uh, six or seven of very knowledgeable people, men and women, academics, private practitioners, strong believers, maybe even a skeptic or two, I'm going to ask them to review anything that this woman comes up with. And then I'm going to try to publish something that said, now my suspicion, but I don't want, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, fix the study ahead of the result, my suspicion is there isn't going to be any convincing evidence. And that'll be all right with me. It just throws the whole thing back to it's a matter of faith, uh, which is okay, too. I mean, if people want to believe <laughs> something, uh, let them believe it. But I'm going to be able to say to myself, well, you can believe that, but I don't. Well... I'm going to recommend to all our listeners that they pick up uh, and read your book, The Antitrust Religion, and uh, I thank you for being uh, with us today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode with guest Edwin Rockefeller is titled The Antitrust Religion, a conversation with the author. The book is available in hardcover and Kindle editions on Amazon.com. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog. That's at ari.einrand.org slash blog or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at einrand.org. I'm Tom Bowden for Eye to Eye.